This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, so welcome everybody. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. <coughs> okay, tonight we are learning Ilu Nishmat Rachel Bat Yisrael and to Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechezkel Ben Avraham. Uh, I, I don't even know where to begin because this whole... I know this is a controversial topic, and just for the fact that we couldn't use our regular Zoom, and we have to, while this was all happening, and we couldn't use our regular Zoom, I was like thinking, I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't speak about this. Maybe this is a sign from Hashem. I shouldn't speak about that. But at the same point in time, I'm like, maybe this is the Yitzhahara doing it. So how do you know how to read these signs? So if you want to know how to read the signs, please refer to the class that we spoke previously on how to read the signs, which is what came into my mind when I was, um, when I was, when I was thinking this. But it's really, um, I, I really apologize for everybody who tried to join us on the Zoom meeting. And let's say didn't make it. We had a last minute change that we had to, uh, you know, go through. This is why uh, the best way possible to go and join the classes is through the is through the um, through the WhatsApp, through the woman's only WhatsApp uh, for to get this to get the information for the live uh, for the live classes. Uh, it, because we're already making announcements, we got to give a shout out to uh, DailyGiving.org. I don't know why. I don't, I really don't know why, uh, this, um, is coming out right now, but for whatever reason, I strongly recommend everybody to go and look at the www.dailygiving.org, an amazing organization that I'm strongly, strongly behind, um, you know, supporting wise. And, uh, they do phenomenal, phenomenal things. And one thing I do want to mention that I mentioned it a few times that every time people reach out to me and they say, you know what, I heard you say it so many times, but I forgot to do it. So now that you mentioned it again, I remember that I'm going to do it. So just as a reminder, in case you didn't, in case you forgot, or in case you never heard about it before, please go to dailygiving.org, an amazing organization. Again, they're not sponsoring anything. They're not paying anything. I happen to be very close with the founder, but it has nothing to do with what's going on right now. I, I just think it's a phenomenal organization, and I think it's a big, big, huge sechut to be a part of and, and to spread. So not only you go and look at it into it and hopefully sign on, but hopefully, uh, hopefully get your friends, your family, your neighbors to go and sign on with it. Okay, so now to the topic at hand. This is... There's no other word to say it other than, I was going to say crazy, but I can't. And I was going to say crazy in a way, like crazy cool. Not like for the conspiracy theories that are crazy. I'm really not, uh, if I if I insult people that believe in these things, that's not my intent. We are going to be speaking about conspiracy theories. Uh, we are going to prove that they are not authenticated. I'm really trying to use my words, uh, you know, wisely and correctly, but my, my intent is really not to insult anybody. And really my intent is not to, um, uh, you know, hurt anybody. It's really just to get that information out there, the correct information, uh, that is now I might get heated. I'm just going to warn you right now. I, I tend to get heated about certain topics and, uh, um, certain topics like these tend to really, and, and I've really been pushing off speaking about this. I didn't, I really didn't want to speak about this, but the more that I see of the information that goes out there, the more of the, the misinformation that goes out there has, um, really been very troublesome and it became to a point where like, should I speak about it? Should I not speak about it? To, to almost to a point where I felt like I, I have to speak about it. Um, not because I'm anybody, I'm an, I know I'm a nobody, but, but just to clarify on what certain 
things mean and how do you interpret? It was like so many clarifications that needs to happen. So the way that we're going to structure this class with Hashem is part of this is going to be dealing with the conspiracy theories, and part of this will be dealing with the uh, with the vaccine. Um, and one thing I want you to keep in mind that a lot of these conspiracy theories that the Jewish people go and they believe and they spread, unfortunately, they morphed from what used to be conspiracies against the Jews, the Jews themselves. And we're going to see how, how it goes out. So, uh, you know, whoever's not familiar with conspiracy theories, please don't research this. It's just going to be a waste of your time. Um, you could either, you know, skip to a different class or, you know, you could skip to the end where we speak about the, the, the vaccines. But there is really no reason to go and look into... into um, uh, conspiracy theories because they're really not based off any evidence. Uh, now, and I'll give you some examples of what we'd like to uh, speak about, or we'll see what we get to. Uh, th- there is a conspiracy theory that goes on that there is uh, no coronavirus. There's no such thing. Coronavirus. There doesn't exist. No one ever saw the coronavirus. Or better yet, where where speakers go up and say, "I never saw the coronavirus." Um, so how are people sick? So it's very very simple. And again. I know it's going to be coming out in a degrading manner, but I really don't mean it to be in a degrading manner, so I apologize if you do get offended. But um, the way that people feel that you got sick if you have the coronavirus, that's because of something called the 5G networks. So the 5G networks are these towers that they sort of zap you with COVID, and that's how you get sick. And if you're already sick and now you need to get the vaccine, oh, to be, you know, you're going to get the vaccine, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be injected with a chip and they're going to track you and they're going to listen to you and they're going to care about everything that you're going to do and they're going to tell your doctor how many bowel movements you had and what you ate it and what was your calorie intake and output and they're going to give you everything from A to Z and it's going to be horrendous. And who is controlling all this? Of course, it's none other than the New World Order. Um, who is in charge of whatever. We'll get to that later. Uh, to, to the point that there is a huge, huge movement right now. Um, and if it would be just in the non-Jewish world, then fine. I wouldn't even bother to go and speak about it. But unfortunately, it crept into the Jewish world where the you, you know, the, the QAnon, where you see people holding the big Q signs. I don't know if you go, know what I'm talking about. This is where they feel like there's, there's, a, there's a person or a group of people that uh, are government officials that they leak information. And what is one of their theories? That there is a huge, high-ranking underground group that they kidnap children and they drink the blood of the children to live longer. Now, now let me repeat that. But before I repeat that, let me just remind people, especially the Jewish people, what you know happened many, many, many years ago um, in the something that was called the blood libels, where the Jewish people kidnap a Christian child. I don't know why I'm using your quotes, but a Jewish, um, the Jewish people kidnapped a Jewish child and they took his blood or her blood and used it for the Pesach Matzot. Now, all of a sudden, if you ever stop for a second and think, all of a sudden this morphed into, no, it's not the Jewish people. Now it's the, it's, it's the high elite. What they're doing is that they're kidnapping children and they're using their blood to go and, and to live longer. Now, if this was just theories, then fine. But this is no longer just theories. People are actually, if you ever you know looked at into the news, People are going armed into stores to shoot up to save the children. Now, they have, you know, righteous, you know, mindsets behind it. But they're, look at how far this has been going. Look how, how far this, this, this theories have been going to it. Now, not everybody might not believe in 
all of it. You might believe in part of it or some of it. There, there, there is something that cre- creeps into the to the Jewish population. To the, in fact, it doesn't even matter for the Jewish population. It's to everybody because this really does affect everybody. Where, where you believe maybe a part of it, and that part could have a very, very drastic effect. Now you have public speakers. Unfortunately, even Jewish people, that what they're doing, and now I'm using air quotes, they're educating you. And this is where I get very, very, I can't say upset, I don't know, frustrated. I'm sure it's my own issue. I need to work on it myself, but it really it really boils my blood, if I could say that. Where they start off with, with saying things like, you can't argue with facts, and they're just reporting facts. And I've listened to these lectures, and I've listened to these classes, and... and don't tell me you're saying facts because six, over 60% of what you were just saying is not facts. It's conspiracy. What Facts doesn't mean that you saw it on YouTube. I can't begin to... Just because you saw it on YouTube, it does not make it a fact. It does not make it news. If it's in the news, it must not be true because the news always lies. But if I saw it on YouTube, now that's a source that I'm going to trust. Then it must be, must be true. There was one... Uh, interview that was going on where a conspiracy theorist was arguing with somebody and this conspiracy theorist goes and says there are many articles to go and to prove what I'm saying and the person that was interviewing them were not, was not a, a conspiracy theorist and they said tell me please we've been searching for it where is it that you found these articles who wrote these articles and you know what the, the conspiracy theorist said I wrote the articles they're bringing proofs from things that they wrote up themselves. This is not even peer-reviewed articles. This is something that they wrote themselves and say, here's a proof. That's like somebody that's going and saying, hey, by the way, an alien landed in my backyard and gave me this book. You want to know the proof? I have an article to prove it. Who wrote the article? Oh, I wrote the article. How, how is, I'm sorry. Like, did I miss something in how to do research? Did I miss something in how to, this is where you're getting it? So that's, you know, one of the many problems. You have another problem where, Everybody who owns a video camera, nowadays you don't even own a video camera, you own a phone, it doesn't matter, and you have a little bit of a beard, all of a sudden you're a rabbi. Everybody else who owns a video camera and a YouTube account is the following, and, and please listen carefully because it's very important because you have to understand how these people gather in their information. So people that have a video camera and a YouTube account, they're all of a sudden they're scientists, not just any scientists. They're cellular and, my, and, and molecular biologists. They're, they know, they're exper- they, they're, know, have a high level of biochemistry and microbiology. They're also virologists. They are also epidemiologists who are people not familiar with what I'm talking about. These are people who, um, determine to, the, the, how to control and spread, prevent viruses, um, you know, from, or diseases from happening. But not only these people are also telecom engineers. They know how to, they know how 5G works. They're also expert in nanoscience and nanotechnology. How are you going to figure out how to implant a chip? They are also, they're also specialists in selfology, which is the quantitative analysis of election, elections and, and balloting. Of course, election fraud, and we can't throw that out. They're, of course, they have a doctorate of law and pharmacology. They're also sociologists, and they're fluent in, you know, I don't know, philosophy and political theory. These people, do you realize how much geniuses we have? Where you have people out of video camera, and all of a sudden, they understand everything. They don't, doesn't matter when you have a doctor who went to medical school, who spent 13 years plus or whatever in school and specialties focusing on, on, on viruses and biology and microbiology, but you know better. Why? Because you watched 10 hours of videos on YouTube that proved with facts that the virus is not real. 
Are you kidding me? Uh, and, and you know how? And by the way, if you haven't realized until now, I'm kind of sarcastic right at this point. You know how you know if a video is real? If it says, you better watch us before they take it down. Who's they? <laughs> That's the new world order. Where they will control you, or they'll kill you, or maybe they will kill you and then control you. Wherever this comes from. Absolutely no evidence. No evidence, but they have all these issues that come up. Now, granted, there are many, many people with power that want to do harm, and they want to manipulate the people. I, I, I'm not denying those facts. But you have to come with evidence. And evidence does not include videos from YouTube. And does not include articles written by people that have absolutely no background in that. Or that they have been discredited from whichever foundation they've been coming from. You know what? There are so many problems that comes from conspiracy theories. First of all, it causes unwanted, unwarranted fear. As a people, this doesn't have to do only with the Jewish nation. There are so many people that are just so, they're full of anxiety. How are they going to pay the bills? How are they going to pay their rent? How are they going to pay their mortgage? How are they going to pay the credit card bills? How, what are they going to do with their health? How are they going to get married? Now that they're married, how are they going to deal with that? How are they going to deal with the children? How are they going to, there's so many things that's bothering them. And now you're putting into them conspiracy theories? One thing is, if it's true, then fine. If it's warranted, if it's based off evidence. But if it's not based off evidence and you're causing people unwarranted fear, you know what a level of punishment that incurs in heaven why are you scaring people with things that are not true? Why are you spreading information that is false, that is not based on evidence? Now, we can only base our things off evidence. That's how we have the, and we'll speak about this later, the fact that we can only judge our what we're going to do based off the evidence that we have. We can't base it off hearsay. We can't base it off things that people make up or think that they've seen. We have to see the real evidence. And you know the problem? It, when people go and they present this misinformation, it causes people paranoia. People can't sleep at night. You might think of it as a passing video, but other people can't sleep. Other people have anxiety attacks from it. Now, not only is this misleading information, this could also lead to matters of life and death. If there was something that we could have done, but due to conspiracies, people refrain from taking proper precautions. Maybe they start taking you know, you know, medicine that is unproven. Maybe they start ignoring public health advice. Maybe they start refusing to take certain vaccines. And by the way, it's not only related to coronavirus. There's so many things that could be a problem from it. And I don't know how somebody could go and take it upon themselves to present this information, to spread this information, that it's not based off evidence and people are scared. Now people are even more scared and people are just, you know, it, 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 not only it, could, it fears them and brings them anxiety and depression, but it could also make them sick and, and God forbid it could make them pass away because they didn't take the proper precautions. How do you have that ability to go and spread something that's not based off proof? Now, Baruch Hashem, there's a lot of speakers that spoke about this in a negative aspect. They've taken down their videos. But there was a damage that was done. What are you going to do with the damage that was done? And that's why it really bothered me. It really, really bothered me. And I was really contemplating about it, giving this class or not, on how much this information is spread and how much problems people don't even realize what it caused because you could have a, a mindset of like okay it bothers me but it's not so bad but you don't know how what other people mindsets are 
You don't know what other people are going through. The second that you say 5G, people are now panicking. They can't use their cell phone. They can't use, you know, they can't walk near towers. They're burning towers now. There's so many things that are happening that are causing these, this, the, these issues that are based off nonsense, that are not based off evidence. If you show me evidence that is real and authenticated, then yes, you have 100%. We should all spread it out. So we have to start realizing now, we have to figure out what is it, conspiracy theories has, have always been going on. It's not something new to, the, to, you know, to our generation. What, why all of a sudden, now it's been gone to such a high level, to, to more than it has ever done before, in, in the, if I believe in the history of the world. So we have a few things we have to consider. First of all, there is a very, very big mistrust in the media. And it, the truth is, it's rightfully so. You see a lot of fake news that's going on, where peop, where the news companies manipulate the news the way they want to see it. And we see it very obvious, for example, in Israel, where they portray Israel, certain news you know, um, companies portray Israel as being the bad people. Meanwhile, their most humane democratic you know, state in the entire area, but yet they portray them as bad. And we can see it, it's very obvious. Things that you know are fake are, are sent in the news. So all of a sudden, even though it's rightfully caused, you have a distrust in the media. Why should I trust the media? You know what I'll trust? I'll trust in the YouTube. Even though it doesn't make any sense, but it makes more sense because why would they lie? Then you have also a, a mistrust in the government, especially after the election, where many people feel that the election was stolen. And I'm not going to get into that, what I think about that. But the bottom line is you have a majority of people do believe that the election was, was stolen. So all of a sudden there's a mistrust in government. And granted, there may be some warranted reasons for that. The problem is, is that, especially when you speak to the Jewish uh, you know, communities, the mistrust in government is not only based on this. There's a long-stemming history of you know, anti-Semitic policies that comes from our, you know, the lands that we were previously in Europe, in Russia, where people are very against Jews, where people made uh, it very obvious, the government, I'm sorry, made it very obvious that they didn't like Jews. And there was very, very large anti-Semitic policies. And because of that, you know, we're sort of very, very prone to be like, why should I trust the government? And you have, you know, especially after the Holocaust, where there were experiments on Jewish people by the Nazis in Marshall. So you have all this. So even we have this mistrust. There are so many times where you have, uh, you know, philanthropists where they're trying to do well, but because of what people think that it's a new world order, they feel that I can't trust them. And what they're doing is really bad. And even though they're trying to do good, they portray them as, as very, very bad. And you have over here the, what is something that's known as the infodemic. And the infodemic is something that, you know, there, there's so much, there's something that's called this overabundance of information. And because some is accurate and some are not, it's very difficult to find a trustworthy source. So you don't know where to actually go and what to actually believe in. And unfortunately, nowadays, especially when you're putting all this together, the conspiracy theorists have exploded in popularity. You have over here, um, you know, an MIT study that was done in 2018, where they showed that fake news travels six times faster than real news. Do you understand that? So if something is fake, they will travel faster. And according to the UGov Cambridge Globalism Project, there was more than a quarter of people in the United Kingdom and the United States that subscribed to at least one conspiratorial COVID belief. And 
it's really mind-boggling on how much it goes. Now, I don't blame anybody for falling into this. It's it's very easy to fall into this. You know, you, you have people that are not working. They're spending more time at home. And they're searching for answers. They want to look for answers. And unfortunately, if they don't do proper research, and many people, unfortunately, are not aware of how to do proper research, not aware of which articles to read and which articles not to, which videos to watch or which speakers to stay away from, so they can be led to a very, very, unfortunately, dark path. Psychologist... Uh, Stephen Lewandowski was from the University of Bristol. He's a cognitive scientist, and he studied why people think, and why people. And he studied the way people think and how and why people engage in conspiracy theories. And he saw that when there is a global event that causes people to feel that they lost control over their life, that's when all of a sudden conspiracy theories come out. And he said that there's something very interesting. Pandemics give conspiracies a push for centuries. Where you have people are feeling powerless. People are going and they feel like they have no answers. So conspiracy theories, they, they offer some relief. And this is what the, uh, Daniel uh, Jolie, he's a psychologist uh, at North Umbria University. And, he, and I quote him, Everyone is susceptible to conspiracy theory. Where feelings of anxiety and certainty bloom, conspiracy theories may be quite appealing. Because you know what? It gives you some sort of psychological comfort. That there's a handful of people that are causing these bad things. And, and therefore, it's controllable. And I can, if I get rid of them somehow, or if I fix them, then I'll fix this entire situation. So you feel like you can control it. This is what happened with the bubonic plague, the Black Death. You know that between 1347 and 1350, the church blamed the Jews for the bubonic plague. And anti-Semitism escalated during those times. And thousands of Jewish communities were massacred because of that. Because sometimes you need to feel the blame. You need to put the blame on it. And you know what? It didn't only last over there. It's also an hour, day, and age. You know there are many, many conspiracy theories that are going around. The Jews are the cause of COVID. Jews, and you know what's going on? The Jews are the ones that are seeking world domination. This is the new world order that... People think that it's they're blaming it on Bill Gates or whatever or not. The other people are blaming it on the Jews. Dr. Daniel Freeman, a professor of clinical psychology in the University of Oxford, said that more than one in five English people believe Jews are cause of the, of the pandemic. Do you understand that? And now we know we're not. Now, it's very obvious that we're not, but, but the facts don't matter. Logic doesn't matter. Because... No matter how much you can prove it, and it's very, very easy to prove that the Jews are not responsible for this. Because if the Jews are responsible for this, then how come there's so many Jewish deaths from this? In Israel alone, unfortunately, there's over 5,000 deaths. There's over 700,000 that were sick from COVID. That's in Israel alone. I'm talking about America or other places in the world. So why are so many people sick? So it's very easy to go and prove and say, look, the Jews are not going and they're not involved in this. But you think that, 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 that goes in the brain? No, because the conspiracy theories don't work based on what's facts and what's evidence. The Turkish politicians, they gave also an accusation that the Jews are somehow involved in the, in the virus. And not only that, that some say that the Jews are behind the pandemic. The, um, Fatih Erbakan. He's the son of the former Turkish Prime Minister, uh, Nijmitin Erbakan. He says, and I quote, the Zionism goal is decreasing the number of people. There are many Jewish speakers that go out there and they speak. They say that, you know what? Because the New World Order wants to go and decrease the number of people. They want to reduce the population. Well, you know what the Turkish is saying? That's the Jews. The Iranian television is going and saying, and they're, they're 
openly accusing Zionist elements. They're saying that the deadliest strains of coronavirus against Iran is a virus proof that Israel is waging biological warfare against, against, you know, Iran. This is the real, this is the conspiracy that theories are going on. It's not just one conspiracy. Everybody is going with different conspiracy theories. And this is, again, it's not something new. We know that the, the, unfortunately, a very, very famous anti-Semitic book called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was created by the Russian secret police, where the Jewish people have secret meetings to conspire to rule the world. Again, this is the aspect of the New World Order in, uh, you know, twisted towards the Jewish, uh, Jewish aspect of it. And by the way, if you think it's so fictional and so far-fetched, Henry Ford in the 1920s, the founder of Ford, you know, Motors, he went and he founded the printing of 500,000 copies of this book and, and distributed it throughout the America. So it's not, and, and a lot of anti-Semitic, you know, um, repercussions resulted from this. So don't, these conspiracy theories, you know, affect people. And, and we as a Jewish nation could realize that effect. We have been on the other side of the conspiracy theories. To go just through very few conspiracy theories to just, you know, uh, you know, uh, um, prove them, debunk them, whatever you want to call. One of them is that uh, the coronavirus was engineered in a lab in China, in Wuhan, China. Now we know that the, the virus was originated in Wuhan, China. Um, and even though this was a interesting thought to put in, you know, right when it came out, like maybe it was, there was a lab right there. So it makes sense. But all of U.S. intelligence agencies have denied this. Um, and they've come in with conclusive evidence that, co- you know, coronavirus, COVID-19, was not man-made. And there's no credible evidence to support that it was a, that was man-made. And not only that, where once this, this came out, that, you know, America, whoever was, blamed China. So now China started, you know, making its own propaganda. We're saying, no, you know how this came? The U.S. military brought the virus from, from, from America to Wuhan. And they're the fault of it. And then you had the Turkish, the kid says, oh, it's not the, it's not American. It's not, uh, it's, it's not China. It's Israel that's going. It's everybody's placing blame in somebody else. Now, if you just stop for a second and think logically, why would a government use a weapon like COVID if they can't control it? No government is able to control this. Why would you do it? And if you want to say it's for population control, then why would you pick a virus that has a very low death rate and it focuses on the elderly or people that have comorbid conditions? So you know what you want to know what one of the mindset is? That everybody's blaming somebody else. It's America's fault. It's China's fault. It's Israel's fault. It's Jews' fault. It's somebody else's fault. But why don't we stop for a second and think, you know what, Hashem is doing this to us. Maybe we should stop. Maybe we should do tshuva. Maybe instead of spending five hours a day on watching and listening and reading these conspiracy theories, we should maybe learn Torah. Maybe we should go and do a little bit of chesed. But no, we're going to focus the blame and don't do this. The government is very, you know, out to get you and people are out. Everything is bad except for maybe stopping for one minute and saying, you know what? Hashem is doing this. Now why is Hashem doing this? Maybe instead of going and listening and watching the next COVID, you know, conspiracy theory, you stop and you go to TorahAnytime.com and you go and you start listening to another Torah class. And may it be a merit that you shouldn't get that disease and you shouldn't have fall to any issues. Maybe do something that you can instead of blaming other situations or putting the blame on something else, stop for a second and realize you can do something. We're Jewish people, we're ma'minim b'nei ma'minim, we're, we're people that believe that everything is from Hashem. So why don't you stop for a second and realize 
What can I do to stop? I could do tshuva. I could learn a little bit more of Torah. I could do something instead of wasting my time and spreading this nonsense. You have, unfortunately, people that are saying that COVID is no worse than the flu. Which, again, I don't know how people are going. Epidemiologists are saying that, that and in fact, the Center of Disease Control, the CDC goes and says that there, for the flu, there's roughly between twelve to 61,000 deaths per year. COVID so far had over 473,000 deaths just in United States alone. So how, how is this exactly the same? You know, I, I don't understand. You know, the, the one of the biggest new conspiracies that, well, it's not new, it's pushing out very strongly, is the 5G, especially in the United Kingdom. Again, I don't know how it's holding up at this point in time, but it was uh, pushing very strong. There's no evidence for this. There's no evidence, in fact, that 5G has any impact on your health. And besides the fact that it's biologically impossible for virus to spread using something that the 5G uses, which is the electromagnetic spectrum. 5Gs are waves or, or photons. Viruses are biological particles that compose of proteins and nucleic, nucleic acids. Uh, they don't, they're two different worlds. But, you know, that's how conspiracy theories works. We take, they take something we fear, or we don't know, like electromagnetic radiation of 5G networks. We throw in an, a hidden sus- agenda. There's a new world order that wants to control the population and why it's pushing out 5G networks. And then you throw in the fear of COVID, all of a sudden, Mazal Tov, you know, you have a conspiracy. You know what happened before 5G? There was a conspiracy with 4G. Before 4G, there was a conspiracy with Wi-Fi. Before Wi-Fi, there was a conspiracy with radio waves. In the early 1900s, they were saying radio waves are going to cause problems. The, the difference is, is that now it's picking up because of social media. Things spread very rapidly on social media. But the real question that you really need to ask for people that believe in the 5G networks, and again... I sincerely, if, if I really do not mean to insult anybody, I'm going to say this multiple times because I really do not mean to insult anybody who believes these things. It, it's I'm just trying to present the information, um, the proper research that you should do and look into. Uh, but if you believe that the 5G networks are the cause of COVID, 5G networks are roughly deployed in about 34 countries. COVID is present in over 212 countries. How do you balance that? How do you balance things that are very, very obviously that don't, don't make sense? You have to stop for a second and think, are they feeding you information that you, you know, that, that sounds real? Because it's very easy to manipulate information. It really is. In our day and age, it's very, very easy to manipulate information to show it the way that you want to, especially when you're dealing, dealing with news, and especially if you have already a false trust in news. And again, it's warranted. All these things are warranted. But you have to stop for a second and think, like, what is the real truth? What is, where does the evidence lie in? And if you're going to start saying, well, you know, the CDC, the WHO, the government, this, everybody's out to be against me, then that's already delving into the world of paranoia. That's something that everybody, that's not the healthy outlook. That's not where the outlook of the Jewish mindset should be. I would like to go into, you know, at this point in time, um, a little bit into the, into, into the vaccines. So in order to understand the vaccines, we have to go a little bit into the history of the vaccines. And I want to start off with the history of the vaccine into smallpox, which is this, if you learn anything about vaccines, this is really where the origin lies. Now, smallpox was a very, very, very severe disease. Uh, you're talking about between 20 to 60% of all those infected died, and over 80% of children died from this disease. In 18th century in Europe, you had 400,000 people that died annually of smallpox. And people that survived, a third of them 
went blind. So during the 20th century, you have roughly, you know, smallpox caused roughly between three to 500 million deaths, meaning that this is a very, very serious disease. And, that, and it's, by the way, it's not new. They found this in, uh, they found the traces of this disease in mummies. You're talking about over three and a half thousand years ago. The way that they, they tried to, you know, come, you know, treat the smallpox is that they realized that once you had smallpox, you became immune to the disease. So the, they called the survivors of smallpox would, would be the ones that we able to go and treat the people that are currently suffering from the smallpox because they are the ones that have the, the immunity to, to, uh, you know, towards it. Now, there, there was something that was called a variolation. This is where a, a process was developed in the 10th century in China and India where it involves taking pus from the people that were suffering from smallpox and inoculating or sort of almost vaccinating healthy people with it. And from that, mild cases of smallpox developed because they, you basically took smallpox from one person and you gave it to another person. And once they got it, they had lifelong immunity, but there was a risk for that, and the risk was death. But still, it made it worthwhile because they found out that between a half to 2% of people died after the variolation. And this compared to between 20 to 60% of people that died from natural smallpox. So they found that this would be a better way to go about and try to protect yourself from, from smallpox. There was many problems. One of the problems was well, there was a disadvantage that people that were variolated, that had this variolation, they could pass on, they had the smallpox, now they could pass on the smallpox to others. So there was, it was a system that was set up, but it wasn't a great system. And all this, there was a huge breakthrough that came out in the year of 1796. And this was by somebody by the name of Edward Jenner. And Jenner did a very, very famous experiment. And he realized, he started looking and he saw that milkmaids, the people that milk the cows and the shepherds, they sort of came immune to smallpox. And he knew also that the milkmaids, they suffered from small blisters that were similar to smallpox, but were not smallpox. Rather, what happened was is that they milked cows that suffered from something called cowpox. And they got, when they got that disease, they all of a sudden became immune to smallpox, meaning that Edward Jenner realized that these two conditions are somewhat related. So he figured that he's going to try an experiment. He's going to try to infect somebody with the milder disease, which is cowpox, and that will protect somebody from the more lethal disease, which is smallpox. So he needed three things over here. He needed smallpox disease, he needed cowpox disease, and he needed a human to be a guinea pig to go and test it. So he went and he found a eight-year-old boy by the name of James Phillips. And he took, you know, he, he extracted cowpox from a milkmaid. And he, and he gave it, and he made an incision into the arm, of, he made a little cut into the arm of an eight-year-old boy, and he put the smallpox into this. He, he basically gave this kid the disease of cowpox. He waited a few months, and a few months later, he went and he injected him with now smallpox. And he realized that this boy did not become sick from smallpox. And he started testing this theory. He tested it on a bunch of people, and he, and he came to prove conclusively that contracting, if you had cowpox, it provided you immunity against smallpox. And this is where all of a sudden the vaccination you know, um, world all of a sudden came into being. So this vaccination started you know, gaining momentum, to the, and, and it gained tremendous momentum in the 19th and 20th century. 
to the point that in December 17, no, I'm sorry, 1979, the World Health Organization certified a global eradication of smallpox. Because of the vaccination, they were able to eradicate smallpox. Smallpox is one of two infections that have been eradicated. The other one is being the rinderpest. But smallpox was comp- the, the deadly disease. One of the most deadliest diseases was completely eradicated. How? Through vaccination. Now, during this time, there was Ravi Sral Lipschitz, which was known based off his Sefer Teferis Yisrael. Teferis, he lived, in, he passed away in, the, in 1860. He was the leading Ashkenazi rabbi in the community of Danzig. And he was the author of Teferet Yisrael, which is a commentary on the Mishnah. And in regards to smallpox, which is otherwise known, he was Ababuot, this, he quotes the Talmud Yerushalmi. On, the question was, can you take this vaccination when it came out? Can you go and take yourself a vaccination? So, the question is, is he goes and he, and he quotes the Talmud Yerushalmi, that it is permitted to take a small, immediate risk to avoid a larger potential risk. Let me repeat that. It's permitted to take a small immediate risk to avoid a larger potential risk. Now, he goes and gives an example that the Gemara brings down that one may dive into a river to save somebody who is drowning even though it places this person at some sort of risk of death. And even though that this the other person who's drowning may not for sure actually drown. So he brings out a conclusion. If adopting a small risk to save another person is permitted, then Kal Vachomer, all the more so, adopting such a risk to save oneself is permitted. And therefore, the Tefelti Yisrael goes and applied the smallpox inoculation that even though at that time, it carried a 1 in 1,000 risk of death, meaning that 1 in 1,000 people died from getting this smallpox um, you know, vaccine. Still, the Tefelti Yisrael says it's worthwhile and it's beneficial that one should go and get the vaccination. Now, in order to understand this, let, let's try to, you know, take a little bit of a detour and look at the Rambam. And there are three levels of obligation where you have to remove um, safety threats. And one of them is imminent and present danger to life or limb, by the way. Number two is something that's a low but significant, significant risk of danger. And number three is something that it's a low, lev- low level but a long-term risk to your health or to your well-being. So, let's look at the last one. So, a law-level, long-term risk to health. The Rambam in Hilchot Deot, chapter 4, Halacha 1, goes and says that a person has to maintain a healthy body. And this is a, a prerequisite to be able to serve Hashem. Because a physically sick person cannot go and serve Hashem. And he goes on and says that a person shouldn't eat unless they're hungry. A person shouldn't drink unless they're thirsty. Which brings me to this. A person shouldn't go and prevent, push off to relieving themselves, even for an instant if they have to go to the bathroom. That's category number one. You have to go and take care of your health. You have to go and do things the correct uh, way. Then you have something that's an imminent and present danger to life and limb. The Rambam goes and says this in Hilchot, Rotzeach, Oshmirat, Anefesh. This is the 11th chapter of the 4th Halacha. That this requirement goes to, let's say, if somebody has a roof or a well. So if you have a roof, you have to go and make sure you put a gate around the roof. Or you have a well, you make sure you put a gate around the well that people don't fall down and they hurt themselves. This is based off of Pasuk in Devarim, in Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 9. You gotta go and you gotta guard yourself. You gotta guard your life. And other examples of more common examples is don't put a playground near a pool. If you have exposed live electrical wires, you gotta make sure you gotta take care of that. The final case where there's, there's something where there's a low but a significant risk to danger. 
And this, if you want to look it up, in the Rambam, Hilchos Rotzeach, Hushmeel, the Nefesh, this is the 11th chapter. Again, Halacha 5 and Halacha 6. That somebody the goat says, I'm not careful about these things. You know what the Rambam says? That person should be punished. And they include examples like, you shouldn't put your mouth over a conduit, over a, where, where you have water that's flowing, and you drink it without able to see what the water is. Because maybe you'll swallow a leech without seeing it. This is where the rabbis prohibited also that you shouldn't drink liquid that was left uncovered because it could have been contaminated with a snake. And this is in a time where the likelihood, even back then, the likelihood was very low for a snake to come in and, and contaminate the water. But still, the halacha was that you have to go and you have to refrain from drinking those type of waters. And the Ramah rules that any relevant situations that have pose a significant risk to danger, and this includes running away from a plague before it becomes an epidemic, you have to do. And there are poskim, some poskim, that have applied this rule into taking a vaccine. We're inoculating, we're taking a vaccine against a plague before it happens. This is where it falls into. And Rebbe Chana Wasserman goes and brings down that generally a person is allowed to take a risk which is normal in society. This concept is known as Shomer Pesaim Hashem. This is based off of Pasuk in Te'ilim, chapter 116, verse 6. It says, the Lord protects the simple people, the unwise people. The concept of this is as follows. That if something is considered a mainstream routine activity, even though it includes a dangerous element to it, an example would be air traveling, going on an airplane, skiing, snowboarding, riding on a roller coaster. They have risk associated with it. But as long as the risks are proven to be negligible, then you could rely on the, on the concept of Shomer Pesayim Hashem, that Hashem, protects, Hashem will protect you, Hashem will protect this, these situations. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who passed away in 1986, he brings down a very interesting case regarding the Tay-Sachs disease. So, um, before there was a development of these certain blood tests that um, would would test between two prospective marriage partners, if they would be carriers of the Tay-Sachs disease, he said, before we had this, you could rely upon Shomer Petayim Hashem. You could rely on that aspect. But all of a sudden now, that we have the ability to test, we have the ability to prevent certain issues. Now you can't no longer rely on the concept of the Shom Pateim Hashem. I'll just do it because that's what everybody does. You cannot rely on this. And, and this is you know something also, Rabbi Yosef Shalom Eliashev, who passed away in 2012, goes and it says, the Gadol Adol says that if people that fail to immunize, this would amount to negligence. And Rabbi Kiva Tatz goes and expounds on this, that people that refuse childhood immunizations on the basis of unsubstantiated fears of vaccines and side effects, this is irresponsible. This is something that's irresponsible. Rav Yishmal HaKohen of Modina in Italy, passed away in 1811, wrote um, the Shalos Yeshuvos in Zara Emes. When he goes and brings down the, the question on smallpox, it's interesting what he says over there. He says over there, he brings down over here, the question is like this. So let's we're, we're going back to the time when, when smallpox, the, the vaccination just came out. So you, the question is, can you infect yourself with an illness with a very low fatality rate to prevent yourself in a disease with a high fatality rate. But there's a difference over here. The difference is, is that's minashamayim. That's from heaven. And this one, you're causing the disease upon yourself. And he goes on. And he says he understands why people go and permit this, uh, this inoculation. They permit this vaccination. But he didn't want to give a ruling. He was fearful to give a ruling. Meaning that this is sort of like people that don't want to vaccinate. This is a, a, a side for, you know, for that. 
the Zifrei Tzedek, who passed away in 1889, um, goes and says that even though the Zera Emes goes and abstains from ruling one way or another, says now we have expert physicians, people that give vaccinations daily and no one has been harmed. And his disciple, the Kafa Chaim, goes and quotes the Zifrei Tzedek. And then he adds in that medicine has since progressed. And the physician had been, and he says this is where they, they started injecting people into the arms with a needle. And this prevents them from contracting smallpox. Now, it, it seems from the Kafa Chaim that, it's, that the vaccination performed at his time did not cause smallpox. And the postkin, you know, in later generations started discussing vaccinations. They see that in earlier times, the vaccinations were less safe, were more problematic. And therefore, there was some hesitancy. And there was rightfully so to be hesitant. But many, many, and not everybody, again, I will give it this, but many, many later postkim and svarim say that this earlier hesitancy is no longer evident. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach and Rav Liyashev says that children should be vaccinated. This is just a standard thing regarding vaccination. However, the Klosenberger Rebbe says that, yes, people should be vaccinated, but he says some, an interesting caveat, that you shouldn't be from the first hundred people to try to vaccinate. And Rav Shlomo Miller also goes down and says that now, since we have the overwhelming majority of medical experts believe that we need to vaccinate, it's proper to follow their advice. Now, with that information, let's now go into the um, let's now go into the, um, the the COVID the you know the COVID vaccine. And so now let's get into the. Um, where, where we have the concern of the COVID, of the COVID vaccines. Um, and I, I do really want to put this out there that even though it's going to seem that I am pushing very strongly for a vaccination, I am just going to be presenting the information regarding what the doctors say and what the rabbis say. But from my own personal opinion, speak to your, you know, speak to your doctor and also um, obviously follow the Gdolin. But this, it's really my own personal you know, opinion. I, I, I would like to follow something that Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky goes, and we'll so, soon see what he says as I, as I quote Rabbi Shmuel Kamenetsky. Okay, but let's look at the COVID vaccine. The COVID vaccine, people are nervous. Okay, let's say people have taken the vaccination. But now, the COVID vaccine is something very different, very unprecedented. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't take this. So... The one of the and, and I want to answer a lot of these these questions that come up and it's a lot of that comes up from conspiracy theories and a lot of it that comes up they're not conspiracy theories that are just really rightful reasons of of questioning this vaccine, and one of it is that it came out so fast it it came out in you know in in under a year people say that it came out you know conspiracy theories that it says that it came out in two months it didn't come out in two months but it came out in under a year, and when we know that especially if you look at the, the you know this is according to the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, brings down that the average time that it takes to create a vaccine is 10 to 15 years, starts, makes you question, be like, wait a minute, how am I supposed to take a vaccine that was created less than a year when it usually takes 10 to 15 years? So I would like to answer on how it came about and how it happened. Um, and during this time, I actually, I have to, um, I have to actually say a, a shout out and a thank you um, because one of the you know doctors that I spoke to was a Dr. Alan uh, Nordman from uh, from Switzerland. So uh, just a shout out from there from doing my research on these and the doctors that I speak to. That's one doctor that I that I actually was asking a lot of questions to. So just a shout out to to uh, to him. Thank you very much for your um, uh, for your help in in just clarifying a lot of things. 
So, and by the way, that's how somebody should do research on something that's medicine. Ask a doctor, do research on doctor. Don't look at somebody on YouTube that may wear a lab coat, but that's just because they're an institution that requires them to wear a white, you know, clothing. But in any case, so when you look at the coronavirus, that it went so fast. So how did it go? Uh, how did it go through, you know, how did it go so fast? First, I want to I want to preface this by saying that the coronavirus went through the same layers of review as other vaccines. It didn't skip any any processes. So let's see how it went so fast. First of all, there was a the, the genetic information of this disease was shared, and yes, even by China, and it was it was shared when it was available, and it was something very interesting. The nations around the globe united together to sort of fight against uh, COVID and, and sharing a lot of this information. Now, what people call it a novel coronavirus, this is something that is a new virus. It's true that it's a new virus, but it's not new. The family of viruses was very, very well known to the infectious disease specialist. They, it, this is not something that, that is a new virus per se. It's, it, the family was very, very well known, the family of viruses. Scientists, in fact, are already researching potential vaccines for other coronavirus. And I'll give you an example. SARS is also a cor- from the family of coronavirus. MERS is also a, a family of coronavirus. And because there was so much research done on those vaccines, on those, they didn't come out yet, but almost vaccines, they were able to apply a, a lot of what they learned in those vaccines and those coronavirus into our currently coronavirus that we have right now. And you have... You know, people that go and they, and they claim that I don't understand. There are diseases, for example, HIV, which has been around for so long and they haven't been able to create a vaccine for it, but yet they're able to create something in a few months for, for this. And the answer is it's two different things. HIV is a chronic illness. COVID is an acute illness. There's two different categories. You cannot compare something that's acute to something that's chronic, uh, something that's a long-term lasting for something that's short-term lasting. So an HIV, a chronic illness, is much more difficult to develop. But before we get into the difference of how they developed it, we first have to discuss the different types of coronavirus vaccines that are, are currently under development or currently that have been approved. So the most famous that we are aware of is the RNA slash DNA vaccine. This is where they take, this is a type of vaccine where they take genetic materials and they copy it. Um, They copy the virus to make the vaccine. So it sort of mimics the natural infection. Then you have something that's called the protein subunit, where this contains protein that are taken from the coronavirus and this produces an immune response. So again, just before we even go further, the way the vaccine works is that you you insert something into the body that will produce an immune and antibody response. It's sort of they'll be, they will fight this response. So the next time that the body meets, it's sort of like training. You train the body by saying, "Hey, by the way, here's uh, uh, you know you're going to lift this, and it's only going to be ten pounds." The body says, "I can do ten pounds, not a problem," and it starts lifting the ten pounds, and it sees those ten pounds. And the next time when the body gets bombarded with a bunch of these 10-pound barbells coming from all over, the body knows how to fight it because it already created the protection, the warriors, to go and fight this vaccine. So that's how technically the the vaccine works. So then you have another vaccine called the viral vector. The viral vector doesn't contain the coronavirus. It contains a different virus that is either dead or weakened, but includes genetic material from the coronavirus. You have another type of virus, which is the weak or inactivated virus. This is a very famous type of virus. This is commonly used for the flu. Um, this is where they take a weak or, or dead virus, and they put this virus into the body, and that stimulates a person's immune response. 
And then finally you have something called the VLP, which is a virus-like particle, which mimics the structure of the virus, but doesn't include any genetic material in the virus. So you have a bunch of different companies trying to produce a bunch of different uh, vaccines based on these different uh, you know, uh, categories of vaccinations. The Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccines, these are made up with the RNA, uh, with the RNA type of vaccine. vaccine. And I just got to put it out there because people think that if you take this, it's going to change your DNA. There is absolutely no evidence to support this. The RNA does not become part of us. It does not become part of our DNA. The way that it works is the arm, the, the, it's the mRNA, M stands for messenger. So it's a messenger. It's sort of like a message that comes into your cells. And what it does is, is it instructs the cells to produce something that's the spike protein. And this is found on the surface of the coronavirus, uh, you know, disease. So once the cell makes a spike protein, the, the cell then breaks down this mRNA into harmless pieces. It, at no point does the mRNA go into the cell's nucleus, which is where the genetic material is, where the DNA lives. So it doesn't change your DNA. Uh, it just goes into a certain point. It gives you the information and then it breaks, it breaks down. Now the difference of this, people are thinking, okay, maybe the older way is better. There's something very, very amazing about this type of vaccination. So for older vaccinations, where they have given weakened or inactivated dead viruses, the um, what happened was that you had the ability of getting that virus. And examples would be the measles or the, or the polio vaccines. So they give you weakened forms of the virus. So in very rare cases, a per- it can cause the disease. So the mRNA technology is something that it doesn't give you the disease. In fact, it's medically impossible for somebody to get COVID by getting the vaccination. It's something unbelievable. It's amazing. And by the way, people say, okay, this is new technology. This is not new technology. This technology, this mRNA technology has been for years in development. And in fact, it's not only been studying, it's been used in cancer and other vaccine developments. It's not something that's, that's only novel to this. It is a new vaccination regarding the, the coronavirus, but it's not by all means a new technology. It's something that has existed before and something that has been used before. The way that people think about it, be like, wait a minute, this is a very big problem because it's new. But it, the, the real situation is that not only it's not new, it, it's more beneficial than other, you know, vaccines. Now, you have still people that feel symptoms. They have, after they take the vaccination, they feel some sort of symptoms. These, and one of those symptoms just is like fever or muscle aches. This is actually good. It's actually beneficial because this means that your body is doing an immune response. It's not an infection. It's something that the body is actually producing the, the, the immunity that it needs to. Now, because of social media, this enabled companies to enroll study vaccines. So social media here worked for the benefit as well. They were able to get a wide sample of, vac- of, of people to go and, and see if this vaccination works, which is something so amazing because the vaccine trials, the tests that they have to put on vaccines usually takes years and years and years. And you have to recruit a lot of participants and to be able to go and figure out the right participants to evaluate its safety, to evaluate its efficiency. There's so many things you have to do it. And not only that, after you get the participants and after they get vaccinated, now you have to wait for them for the natural infections to take place. Meaning that you, if you want to see if a vaccine works, so you give somebody a vaccine and then you expose them to the vaccine and see if they get the vaccine. Now, because the prevalence of the virus in the community was so widespread that you had many people that took the vaccine. They were exposed to the 
to the virus, and they did not get the disease. And this is where brings me to, um, you know, before actually we get to that, we have to go and we have to discuss the the how is the traditional vaccine testing process different from this one. How do, how do they, if you have a company and the company wants to go and produce a vaccine, what is the process that you have to go through? So the process is as follows. First, you have something that's called the discovery, discovery phase or the exploratory phase where scientists go and they study the structure of the virus and how it causes the disease in the body. Once they have that information, this allows them to identify the potential ways of creating an effective vaccine. This process usually takes several years. And by the way, listen closely, because here I'm going to show you how the virus was, the, the vaccine was able to go and come out very, very uh, quickly and not take the normal 10 to 15 years. So the discovery phase usually takes several years. But because of the new technology that allowed the genetic makeup of the coronavirus to be shared with researchers worth worldwide, in just a few, literally right after the, the first cases of COVID came out, the genetic, um, you know, information, the genetic makeup was shared with everybody. And so this sped up the process extremely fast. Once scientists then go and they select and they, they start figuring out this, they start studying this disease and they select which type of vaccine is the most promising. Then they go and they create that vaccine in the lab. Then they go into a stage that's called the preclinical testing. The preclinical testing is something that's done in the laboratory. And this, they first start testing on cells, and then they start testing on animals. And if the vaccine creates an immune response, they move on to the next stage. But you should know many vaccines don't make it past this stage because they don't prompt an immune response. If they don't prompt an immune response, then there's no point of going further with it. But let's say they found a, vac- they found a vaccine that does create an immune response, they go on to something that's called the clinical trials. The clinical trials are divided into something that is called the three phases. This is regulated by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. And there was something very interesting. When regarding the cases of COVID, all three phases were planned, planned simultaneously. Usually the way that it works is that each phase is planned out after the previous one is completed. Because companies, nobody wants to put so much money behind the vaccine that won't be successful. So first you start phase one. If that's successful, now, now let's start plan, planning phase two, and then we'll go to phase two. Now, if that's successful, let's start planning phase three, because the creation of vaccine is very, very expensive. The difference over here with the COVID vaccine is that all three phases were planned simultaneously, and we'll soon see why and how. Now, how are these three phases? What, what, what characterizes these three phases? So the first phase is of the clinical trials is where you have usually less than 100 people. You have 20 to 100 people that, that join this, this trial, and they test to see if the vaccine is safe, the best dosage, and by the way, this is with consent. They usually get paid for this. It's not based off something that they, whatever, I don't want to get to the conspiracy theories. They are the full consent, and they full understand what they're getting into. This phase usually takes several months. About 70% of drugs move on to phase number two. Phase number two is where you have a larger study. Here's where you have, except before the phase one, we had under 100. Now you have a few hundred volunteers. And again, you, you, the scientists go and they figure out the proper dosage, the proper schedule, the proper method of delivery. They look at all these things. This phase takes between several months to two years to complete. And you have only about 33% of drugs that make it, into, that make it out of phase two into the next phase, phase three. When you get into phase three, you go into an even a larger study where it includes 
thousands of volunteers. You have thousands of thousands of volunteers. And this phase can take between one to four years. And only about 25 to 30% of drugs make it to phase three. So as you can see, it's very expensive because a lot of a lot of vaccines don't make it all the way out. And unfortunately, what you have a lot of um, conspiracy theories that are coming out and saying that don't run to take the vaccine because you are the guinea pigs. You are the ones that are getting tested. You are the human testing. And this cannot be further from the truth. Moderna went and they had before they rolled out with their um, with the vaccine, they had more than thirty thousand participants that tested in this. Pfizer had over 43,000 participants in this. So this is not the first time. This has been very, very well tested, this, this vaccine. What happened goes, what, what goes on next, after, the, after we go into phase three, then if the trial is successful, then the manufacturer, either, you know, in this case, Pfizer or Moderna or any other companies, they will submit something that's called a BLA form. This is a biologic, this is called a biologics license application, and they submit this to the, to the FBA, FDA. And the FDA starts researching this. If there is evidence that it is effective and it does no harm, the FDA approves it for general use. But if the vaccine is not proven, and by the way, the, va- the FDA looks for evidence that the vaccine is not safe, that it's ineffective, that it has side effects, and that it outweighs the benefit, if it finds any of these things, it does not approve the drug. What happens afterwards, let's say he passes that, and the, and the FDA says, okay, you're good to go. Then they start manufacturing. So manufacturing begins when phase three have already been planned. So um, the process of after the vaccine is approved, the CDC, which is Centers of Disease Control, and the FDA, they continue to monitor this, uh, you know, this vaccine to see if anything, is, if it's really faith and if it's something that needs to be done. Now we have to speak about a very, very important aspect, and that is the money aspect of it, where vaccines are very, very expensive. Each step in the testing requires a significant amount of financial investment. So why, how is it now that you have all these companies that put so much money into this and maybe it didn't, it wouldn't go through? So the government and um, nonprofits poured billions of dollars into these companies to sort of um, tell them. And what they did was is that they just not only do the research, but they started the manufacturing even before it was approved. Meaning that this is actually a point of concern, maybe, because the, vac- the, the companies went and they started manufacturing vaccines before the vaccines were approved, and they started paying for it. Why did the government do this? Because they wanted to cover vaccines. The, the, the pharmaceutical companies don't want to pour billions of dollars into this. So the government says, don't worry, we'll cover the loss. We'll go and we'll pay for you. And what happened was that in certain cases, the vaccines were not approved. And you know what happens? The government bought it up. It didn't go into, you know, you know, into the, into the environment, into the community. The government went and they took, the government took the hit from this. Because the government knew that if we want to get out of this virus, we have to pour in billions and billions of dollars into it. And that's what they did. And there was so much, so much things that, that they poured into it to make it go faster. So you have all these, these scenarios over here where instead of waiting the, the, Pharmaceutical companies had incentive to just keep on going three steps ahead of the game. And if it didn't fail, so they discarded that, but they didn't lose money from that at least. So they, they went and they had the ability, the opportunity, 
to go and produce the vaccine, do the research vaccine, and pour in a lot of money because they didn't lose the money from it. And because of that, they were able to go and get a vaccine so fast. So they were able to take what usually takes 10 to 15 years, they were able to cram it into, into you know, less than a year. And that's because they had a financial backing for it. And that's because they had the resources, they had the social media, they had the ability to go and do it. But don't think for a second that the safety uh, you know, repercussions will be able, were, were overlooked. One of the biggest things that I personally see is who are the first people that are taking this vaccine? The healthcare professionals. The people that spend the entire life working and understanding and studying the medical background. They're the first ones that are taking these vaccines. Don't you think that even if there was a Havamina, even if there was a reason not to take the vaccine, they're the first piece of people that shouldn't take it? But yet they went and they took it. So now we see that the vaccine was produced in a safe manner. Now again, I'm just giving you over the information. I'm giving you the information as was properly researched through the proper, proper sources. What's going to happen in the future, I can't tell you. And not only that, I can't tell you what to do, but I want to present you the proper research. And with that, I want to share with you and how the rabbis approach this. So the way that the rabbanim, and I know we're going way over than the regular because we started late, so still... Please bear with me, we're almost done. The way that the rabbis go and deal with medical situations is that majority of rabbis are not medical experts, they're not doctors. So how do they come to conclusions, do this or do that, or don't do this and don't do that? The rabbis rely on the scientific data available. And let me repeat that. The rabbis rely on the scientific data available. That is evidence-based you know, practice. That are things that are based off evidence and proven facts, not based off hearsay or warranty or, or theories. And this is not something that's new to nowadays and age. This is always, you know, has been. This is also, that, that includes when you have people that are at life risk, where it's, you have to desecrate Shabbat. Shabbat is one of the most important aspects of Judaism. And the rabbis go and they base off if you have to desecrate Shabbat and what the doctors say. So the, the rabbis have always been looking at the scientific data available through the scientific experts of the times. Whether it's the time of the Gemara, whether it's the time of the Mishnah, or whether it's an hour, day, and age. And by the way, the rabbis just don't res- give a, um, you know, some sort of ruling just off the top of the head. Which really bothered me where I heard where somebody went and said that the rabbis are corrupt or the rabbis are fooled. That is so false and it really, really, really bothered me. That's not how rabbis come to their conclusions. And I want to share with you a story of how the Chazon Ish comes to a conclusion. Somebody came over to the Chazon Ish. And they came over to the Chazon Ish with a non-pressing issue. And they asked the question, what would happen if this would come out? Meaning that it was a hypothetical case that came over to the Chazon Ish. So the Chazon Ish says, listen, when the situation comes back, then you come to me and I'll go and we'll figure out what to do. But the, the person says, no, but theoretically speaking, what should I do if it comes out? So the Chazanish stopped him and he says, what do you think happens over here? Do you think that I just give advice that just rolls off my tongue? The Chazanish goes and says, I, I mull over the issue many times. And I think of all the long-term and the short-term effects. Of all the long-reaching effect of the decision and the short-term reaching of the decision. And I invest time and energy to make the proper decisions. The way that a rabbi goes and makes a decision is not just based off just like one doctor what they said. The rabbi goes and focuses us on what, the, what is the potential outcomes from all angles. And then they come to the decision. To say that the rabbis are fooled is something that really, really bothers me. 
Because the rabbis speak to the, especially the gedolim, they speak to the specialists. They don't speak to a regular local, you know, pediatrician or, you know, general medicine, internal medicine doctor. They speak to the specialists of the field. And when you look at that, what do the rabbis say, the gedolim say regarding the vaccines? And majority, not only of the rabbis, majority also of the doctors. You look at the rabbis, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, Rabbi Gershon Edelstein, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, Rabbi Mazuz, Rabbi David Yosef, Rabbi Chacham Shalom Cohen, the Admor Mivizhus, Admor Megor, Rabbi Asher Weiss, Rabbi Melah Ferro, you all say the same thing that you have to take the vaccine. Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky even said that it's a must. Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef that it's a, said that it's obligatory. Rabbi Meir Mazuz goes and says that any allegations against the vaccine is imaginary evidence. And you look at the doctors. What do the doctors say? The doctor says, take the vaccines. Majority of the doctors say, take the vaccines. But now this leads us to a question. And the question is, but we have doctors that say, don't take the vaccines. And we have some rabbis that say, don't take the vaccine. So what do you do? What do you do when you have two situations? When you have rabbis say one thing and rabbis say another thing. It's machoket. Machoket in the doctors, machoket in the rabbis. What do you do? So we looked at two things. We look at numbers and we look at expertise. We look at numbers, we look at majority versus minority. We also look at expertise, specialist versus, let's say, the regular doctors or regular you know, people in the field. We know both that in numbers, majority of the doctors, majority of the rabbis say to take it. The expertise, the specialist in the field, the doctors say to take it. The majority of the doctors say to take it. And again, bear with me of what my personal thoughts are. Rav Moshe Sternbach speaks about in, in the measles epidemic that when you have an overwhelming majority of medical authorities who mandate vaccination, you are not allowed to choose the minority opinion. And he advised uh, the people that advise against taking the vaccines. Now again, there are rabbis that, that are against the vaccine and we're not getting really into that you know, per se. I just want to put, I want to put both sides out there. But majority say that you should do it. The effect of how bad this went out is that there was a letter that went out that, that was a bunch of rabbis that said that don't take the, you should not take the vaccine. And it was turned out that this document was a fake. One of the, one of the people on the letter was none other than Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky. And Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky over there on the letter apparently said that he, gave, that he said that you should not take the vaccine. And he had to write a letter out and saying that I never gave such a psaq. Meaning that people, I don't know how somebody could go and put a, and forge, these are people that believe in rabbis, that believe in the Gedolim, and they forge what a rabbi says. Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky had to come out and say, I never gave this psaq. And Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky says, each one should ask his own doctor. And that's my personal opinion. Each one should go and ask their own doctor. Yes, you have the majority of the Gedolim that says, take the vaccine, which is where you should be leaning towards. But again, I'm not saying what my, my opinion is. And you have majority of the doctors that are saying that you should do it. And you have some people that go and they say, you know what, but maybe there's side effects. Maybe there's side effects. As of now, from my knowledge, from my information, no one died from the vaccine. You have people that did die from that vaccine, that, but they took the vaccine, but it was unrelated to the vaccine. One was from a heart attack, another was from multiple sclerosis, had nothing to do with the vaccine. Generally, the side effects that you have from the vaccine is usually mild fever, headache, weakness, soreness, like you know, general symptoms of, of uh, you know, flu-like symptoms. There is a very rare anaphylaxis, you know, reaction, and this is why they, 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 there is a requirement that you stick around um, after the vaccine for twenty to thirty minutes to see if you have any reaction. And generally, people that have these types of reactions to vac- vaccinations know that they have those types of reactions, and they should speak to the doctor as well. And this is what Rev. Usher Weiss comes and brings down. 
Rav Usher Weiss. And by the way, I strongly recommend anybody to go and listen to Rav Usher Weiss. By the way, there's a lot of amazing Rabbanim that go and they speak about this. And you can go on Torah time, you look at Rav Usher Weiss, you look at Rabbi Shai Tahan. They speak about this extensively, beautifully on this, on, you know, on this, you know, on this topic. And I strongly recommend to do proper research on this. And Rav Usher Weiss goes down and brings down that every new medicine or every new medical procedure might have long-term effects. And we have to try to strike the balance between what's needed right now and what could theoretically happen in the future. And Rav Asher Weiss goes and says, people are dying, people are suffering. We could alleviate this. There's a vaccine and this is what we should do. That's how Rav Usher Weiss goes and, uh, and says it. What we see over here, and, and again, I, I really want to put a, a sincere you know, apology for if my intent is not to go and insult people or um, you know, make people feel, feel bad if they believe in any of these things. That's really not my intent. My intent is really to try to bring information the way that it ought to be brought. A lot of people have presented this information in a very, very bad manner that is not real. And consider this as facts. These are not facts. And I just wanted to put that information out there. So again, Michilas Aserim apology. I know people, and I've gotten messages while I was saying this class, you know, about that. I really don't mean to hurt or harm or offend anybody. The purpose of this is really to put the truth out there. You, what you really should do is speak to your local medical authoritative doctor and see what is the correct thing that you should do based on your own condition. Obviously, we look at the gedolim, and Cheryl, we'll get you. We'll open up for questions in in a in a minute. This is what you should be you should be doing, and most importantly. Don't waste your time with these conspiracy theories. Not only do they cause harm, they cause you know issues for people. You have to you have to you know stay away from these from these things. I know this is a very controversial issue. I know this is something that is not easy to hear from many people. And again, my sincere apology if I offended, I hurt anybody. But this is what I felt was something that I needed to say. Uh, something I'd actually been pushing off. I didn't want to say, uh, but something I felt that I needed. If there's something that I said that I was wrong. Uh, please reach out to me. I'm more than happy to go and and issue another video saying that I was wrong in something. This is not my expertise. I'm more than happy to do that. So please, if you have evidence that is wrong of what I said, please share with me. And I would like I would share it with the public. I would post it, uh, you know, on one of my other my other classes. With that, let's open up to uh, some questions. So there is a question over here regarding the liability of uh, pharmaceutical companies that uh, that can't be sued and all these things. Now, granted, there are there are issues. I, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of plenty of issues, not only with vaccinations, with pharmacology, with pharmaceutical companies. There are plenty of issues, but we have to do what's best to do with the information that is given to us at, at hand. And this is where we are. This is the information at hand. Shira, I know you had a question, so go ahead. I just wanted to back up what you said. Um, here in Memphis, Tennessee, we have the St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, started by Danny Thomas, and they uh, study cancer, and they just take care of children. My niece works for them, and I know you know from her that starting in January, when they saw this spreading, they dropped everything they were doing, and not only the St. Jude's Hospital, but research hospital, but research hospitals and research centers around the world dropped what they were doing and gathered together, and they were interconnected, passing information back and forth of their discoveries. And they were testing the St. Jude's employees starting in June. Wow. And this was on the, St. Jude's did the McDermott, 
uh, did I say that right? Moderna, yeah. Yeah, they did, they did that uh, vaccine. So by the time they started giving the vaccines, you know, here in January, they had spent six, seven months on human trials. Yeah. So yep. it, it, this is proof of how far science has come um, that they can, they've got set things, like you said, that they go through, set steps that they could go through to come up with vaccines. And we have evolved so far in science that it doesn't take 10, 15 years to come up with a, a vaccine right. uh, for something like this. It's... So this isn't something they just came out with all of a sudden. It was a worldwide effort. Agreed. And a worldwide sharing of information, minute by minute by minute. Hundred uh, uh, so percent. in human trials for for a while. Yeah. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for the. Yeah. That's the evidence that 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 exists now. That's where, that's where we're holding. Unfortunately, people you know are not looking at that. But that's that's the bottom line. That's the truth. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, any other questions? No? Okay, amazing. Chazakubaruch. Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.